from New York, it's Radio Night Live with Kevin McCullough. All right, Kevin McCullough, as I promised earlier, we were going to take a look at, um, as we have uh, throughout the show today, uh, some uh, aspects of the Supreme Court cases. Because as I wrote at townhall.com over the weekend, uh, I believe this was a ginormous sweep of victories if you are an originalist and a textualist. If you're an originalist in uh, philosophy and theory about law, then these were big, big wins. And if you're a textualist, you love this as well because it gets people going back to what does the Constitution say? And I thank uh, Lieutenant Governor McCoy for being with me in the last segment. But I'm excited to talk to my next guest uh, because uh, uh, we we don't have often uh, this kind of expertise while they are in the midst of of um, proving their expertise. And Judge Amul Thapar is of the uh, United States uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, Sixth Circuit, and he's just written the book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. Uh, I, I love everything about Justice Thomas, and I'm eager to see how this book compares to other biographies that I've taken a look at and even the documentary that uh, was released last year on his life. But Judge Thapar, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. You got it. Um, let me just ask you first the about the, the most obvious connection to you, and that is Judge uh, uh, Justice Thomas uh, writing in one of the most uh, <laughs> Uh, vigorous uh, concurring opinions, I think, that he's written of his career with the affirmative action um, majority. Um, one, why did he feel it was important to write that concurrence? And uh, what did he feel like he needed to say that the opinion for the court didn't quite cover? You know, for his entire tenure on the bench, and the book talks about this in chapters two and three, where it talks about both vouchers and affirmative action. He has been making the case pretty passionately and convincingly, at least in now the court's mind, that affirmative action is an unconstitutional band-aid on a much bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And the bigger problem is the failing, it, to the extent people are cast into failing schools, young children cast into failing schools. As the book recounts, Justice Thomas was someone who grew up dirt poor, so poor that he couldn't, often didn't get two meals a day, let alone three. His mom made $10 every week. She had to give them to his grandfather for his grandfather to raise him and his brothers. Grandfather had a third grade education and understood, and interestingly, this is chapter two in the book, education means emancipation. And so what did his grandfather do? And that's quoting Frederick Douglass. He saved every nickel he had to send a young Clarence Thomas and his brother to Catholic schools. What Clarence Thomas sees now, and, and chapter two talks about this, the voucher program, you see the Cleveland schools failing and in that particular case. And that case talks about what the students were going through where they didn't have soap and um, toilet paper and the basic necessities in their school. 25 buildings, 14 to 25 buildings had been condemned. And so what was their way out? It was vouchers. And Justice Thomas talks about how we've cast these kids in inferior schools despite the promise of Brown. And at the same time, used affirmative action to help elitists feel good about themselves so that the school looks like they want it to look. And that's what he talks about. The other thing he talks about affirmative action and the casthood of victimhood is he talks about that blacks, when given the opportunity, will be victors not victims and we should not 
by casting them as inferior, saying you need lower test scores, you need these things, we are telling them they are victims. And he said that is completely inappropriate. The final point, and then I'll stop, is he makes often is affirmative action puts a stigma on the people who even get there through pure meritocracy. Yep. And so it's interesting after the case, they say, well, Justice Thomas benefited from affirmative action. Well, how do they know that? He was ninth in his class at Holy Cross, grew up dirt poor. I mean, you could take a white kid with the same exact or an Asian kid or a Hispanic kid with the same exact background story. They might get into every college in America. We just don't know. But yet he carries that they want to cast that on him, which is ironic because they're proving his case. Yeah, no. And I think I've always felt that that was one of his strongest points. Um, If there is anything that uh, Justice Thomas seems to uh, belligerently rebel against, it is the automatic victimhood of the individual and the uh, compulsory need for, you know, somebody to come in and save them from the outside. Uh, which runs counter to what you were just describing, everything that uh, the uh, the affirmative action kind of ethos that came about was, well, we're making up for past wrongs, but you've been so pushed down, so hurt, so so incapacitated. We've got to we've got to help you up. And and Justice Thomas is a is a standing remarkable example that the opposite is true. Hard work, perseverance, initiative, those types of things. We're speaking with. Um, Judge Amol Thapar uh, of the Sixth Circuit, uh, and we're so honored to have him tonight. Stay with us. When we come back, we're going to delve into some of the other Supreme Court cases as they got decided last week here with Calvin McCullough. Stay here. Ooh, what a little moonlight can do. It's Radio Night Live. Here's Kevin McCullough. Ooh, what a little moonlight can do to you. All right, Kevin McCullough, glad to have you with us uh, as we continue with our kind of legal examination of the Supreme Court's um, rulings. And it was one after the 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 affirmative action ruling coming down on Thursday of last week was kind of a bombshell. But then what happened on Friday where there were six others that went off, um, three of which, four of which were very, very significant. You had uh, one that dealt with the college tuition uh, uh, issue that uh, the president felt like he had the right to forgive college tuition debt that uh, people had incurred, which is basically redistribution of future tax dollars and wealth from one group to another. Uh, then you had uh, a couple of cases that were built all around religious liberties that were up testing against, you know, kind of other uh, powers within the within the culture. The, uh, Cal- the uh, Colorado uh, web designer Uh, certainly up against the same issue that it seemed like the court had already dealt with when it came to LGBTQ rights. Um, But uh, Judge Thapar, let me ask you, um, the religious liberties or the idea of religious liberty, which is embodied in our documents, um, really did come out on top, uh, you know, in a couple of ways last week. And I'm just curious from where you sit watching uh, those decisions come down, what your thoughts were about it. Yeah, so one of them um, involved a case I wrote about, and it was whether the businesses can, like, let's say someone has a Sabbath on on Saturday or Sunday, for example, but either day, and they want an accommodation so that they can work on the other days. This case was, I I believe, if I remember correctly, 9-0, and the court said, the Title VII says, 
that a business must provide a religious accommodation unless it would cause an undue hardship on the business. And what had happened um, is in a case called TWA, the Supreme Court, in essence, laid out a test. And courts had interpreted that test as meaning that businesses only had to show a de minimis hardship, a, a small hardship, in an easier way to say it, a small hardship. But that's much different than undue. And what the Supreme Court did is they said, no, 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 undue means undue. You can't rewrite the text. And so it has to be an undue hardship. The advantage of these decisions, Judge, is that they are the precedent that now will be referred back to uh, when these uh, when the, when, you know, cursory issues related to these are going to come up. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is it not a little bit of a seismic shift with the Supreme Court kind of back to originalism, back back to the text of the Constitution in, the, in these decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think the court, I think right now, to call it seismic is a little unfair to the court because I think Justice Thomas is, I make the case in the people's justice for 30 years has been consistent on this. And Justice Scalia was right there with him as they, the two of them were principal originalists. Have more originalists joined the courts writ large? Yes, I think that's not debatable. I think on the lower courts, you see it. I think at the Supreme Court, you know, we have now much more of the justices looking to the original meaning, including sometimes the dissenters. And so that makes it really interesting. As Justice Kagan said, you know, we're all originalists now. I think that is something that we should all pay attention to. And I hope that going forward, people will make originalist arguments to the judge. I'm going to interrupt you, though, because yep. the what 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 I did notice about these decisions that I have not noticed about a lot of decisions over the last few years is that the dissenters were pretty hot-headed about it. And they, they went back into the chambers and read their decisions for the media. And they they really uh, kind of uh, forcefully uh, said how much they disagreed with this. And what I was taken by was the remarkable lack of what I felt was like constitutional depth to the arguments that they were making. It, it, they appealed oftentimes to emotion or to other things that were not related to the issue or the law itself that was being argued. Am I wrong in that perception? You know, I would take issue with that they um, were emotional. I think everyone can get heated at times. What I would say is they just approached the law in a different way. And they they were emotional because they thought they were right. And there's nothing wrong with that, per se. It's just that maybe you think the majority got the better side of the argument. As lower court judges, we always think the majority is right because we have to follow it. <laughs> uh, okay, understood. Uh, well enough. Can, can we touch on the college tuition forgiveness uh, case for a second? Because this was a this was a debate between the extent to which the executive has power to do certain things. And they kind of slapped his wrist and said, no, sir, you don't have that power. Again, to go back to what the case was really about, set the student loans aside for a second. The question as an originalist, and I think everyone understands bicameralism and presentment. That means Congress has to vote on and pass laws and the president has to approve or veto them. And there's a process by which we pass laws. And if Congress doesn't speak clearly when they authorize an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance, it doesn't matter what it is. So the, the people today 
upset with that doctrine tomorrow will be happy with it because uh, every you know ordinary americans understandably look at the result and say that's the student loan case but i think the the most com the all the opinions are great but the one opinion i would encourage people to read is justice barrett's 16 page concurrence in which she explains that when we do textualism and what you probably explain that because you use the term but when we look at the text of a law we do so um at, with common sense and we don't as i'm going to quote justice scalia if i may elephants elephants aren't hiding in mouse holes and so if they meant if congress <laughs> meant to give the permission to the president to do something of significant economic consequence to the American people, they have to do so explicitly. And that that seems like, as Justice Barrett says, a common sense rule. She uses a great example that everyone can understand. If you leave your kids with a babysitter for the weekend and you say, take care of them, um, that doesn't automatically mean the babysitter can take them to Vegas and party with them, right? <laughs> it's true, yes. <laughs> Now, so she says, we can't leave common sense at the door. And I encourage everyone to read that because I think it's hard to dispute that she's what she's saying makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, we have been so honored to have Judge Amul Thapar with us. His book is The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. It is published by Regnery, our great sister uh, organization here at Salem and uh, doing a great, great job. And I would really encourage everyone to pick it up and take a look at it. Uh, Clarence Thomas has become one of my uh, kind of side passions all over again in recent uh, months and years, and I look forward to completing it as well. Judge Thapar, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. You got it. Kevin McCullough coming right back. Stay here.